0: Hello listeners, this is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 47. Uh, We're going to be talking about Kenji Mizuguchi's Fallen Women, uh, or at least two of them today. We're uh, splitting the coverage of this Eclipse series set into two episodes, and today I am joined by Scott Nye. Good morning, Scott.
1: Good afternoon to you. Yes, (laughs)
0: Yes, <laughs> that's right. We're kind of trading time zones there. Now, uh, faithful listeners to this podcast will wonder, where's Trevor? And that actually, Trevor was perfectly planned and prepared to join us, and then life happened, and he had to step out, kind of a short notice, last minute thing. Uh, but we wanted to go ahead and proceed, stay on schedule. And, you know, Scott, you and I have done enough podcasts that I don't feel like uh, his absence is going to be Glaring, It's certainly going to be missed, and we uh, certainly look forward to Trevor rejoining us next week when we cover the second two of the four films in this set. But it is good to have you back on The Eclipse Viewer.
1: It's good to be here. And yeah, we've been around the block a few times. We know it's up. That's right. We've got that rapport going. So uh, if
0: you are a relatively new listener to The Eclipse Viewer, uh, you may not recognize that uh, or recall that Scott was actually a guest on episode number two of this uh, podcast way back in 2010 when it was Rob Nishimura and I hosting it and uh, Scott joined us for the Silent Narase set uh, that was uh, you know pretty good I mean I have not gone back to listen to that that episode and it would be kind of interesting to compare as we've uh, certainly gotten to know each other uh, online and and uh, uh, through various conversations over the last several years but uh, it's good to have you back with uh, another coverage of some pretty. Uh, crucial and perhaps uh, you know undeservedly overlooked Japanese films of the 1930s. So yeah, uh, let me ask you just this, Scott. You know what, what interested you in being part of uh, this particular episode with Mizuguchi?
1: Um, I don't. I mean, I I never really expected myself to fall into the camp of being called upon frequently for early Japanese cinema, but somehow here I am. Um, I've just really gotten into. Uh, yeah, the kind of classical Japanese cinema over the past, really since that uh, first Eclipse Viewer episode. I At the time, I was really getting into Naruse, obviously. And since then, I've kind of gotten more into Mizuguchi and Ozu as well. Uh, when Masters of Cinema released their late Mizuguchi set, I want to say that was three years ago or so. That was kind of a huge watershed moment for me and Mizuguchi. I'd seen Sancho and Ugetsu beforehand and didn't really like completely love them, but then rewatching those and then seeing kind of the other films he was making, especially his contemporary set films about kind of the geisha world and uh, the world of women in contemporary times, you know, it's easy enough to kind of look back at the more ancient set Japanese films and say, well, you know, of course women had it harder back then, you know, life was hard for everybody. And certainly women were treated horribly in in a, you know, quote unquote, less enlightened time, but then to see films made in, you know, the 50s that Uh, acknowledged the progress that it had made, but still shined a light on, in some ways, how little progress had been made over, at that point, centuries. Uh, It was really striking and uh, obviously easier to relate to as a contemporary viewer. And that kind of gave me then a window into uh, kind of viewing his more uh, ancient set films uh, through that same lens and kind of seeing where he's coming from and seeing his aesthetic approaches and emotional approaches and then uh, for these films specifically, I hadn't seen them at all. So it was really just an excuse to watch more Mizuguchi. Um And I kind of understand that these were kind of his really breakout films. It's interesting to see so many kind of approaches and uh, stylistic devices that would become more refined over the years, kind of find their purchase in these early works. Uh, I don't think they're like as good as those later films, which I'm sure we can get into. But... Um, I still think they're pretty striking and evolving films nonetheless.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So I, I didn't realize this was kind of a fresh take for you, uh, but I'm really excited to hear, um, you know, what you have to say about them as we get into it. So yeah, Miz- Mizuguchi is one of those directors where, uh, similar to perhaps Ozu or Kurosawa, uh, you know, for most Western viewers anyways, our our initial exposure to their Work is going to be through some of those later career, you know, uh, spectacles, especially with Kurosawa and and Mizuguchi with these kind of historic epics, uh, kind of costume dramas, exotic sets, uh, kind of almost mythical types of settings. Uh, And so to, yeah, to take it back to these roots of uh, Mizuguchi as really just a very prolific working director uh, who was, making films for his contemporary audience perhaps had no aspirations or even anticipation that he would one day become a heralded you know legendary director of uh, world cinema uh, you know especially these these first two films uh, Osaka Elegy and Sisters of the Gion both filmed in 1936 uh, we may think of them as you know quote unquote early Mizoguchi but he was actually quite well into his career i think he had uh, directed something around of uh, fifty five films by by this point in his in his career, and a lot of them were of course very short uh, films, maybe a forty five to sixty minute range, maybe a little bit longer. But these films are both just a little bit over an hour. Uh, but as you said, Scott, he considered these to be kind of his launch into you know serious cinema. Now, you know, uh, the other kind of tragic aspect of of the earlier as- aspects of, uh, of Mizuguchi's career is that. Almost all of those films are lost. I think there are like six films that preceded these uh, these two that we're going to be discussing today that do exist. And I don't think that Criterion has any rights to them. I mean, these are the first two that you're going to find if you look at what's available chronologically. Now, there's a reason we kind of chose this month to cover... Uh, the Mizuguchi set, and that's because Criterion has just released uh, the story of The Last Chrysanthemum uh, on Blu-ray and DVD. And that was a film that was made just a couple of years after these two. So putting, putting them all sort of in line here, you've got Sisters of the Gion and Osaka Elegy in 36. I think uh, Last Chrysanthemum was 39. And then you've got uh, a, a, a transition that takes place. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that phase of Mizuguchi's career when we cover uh, Last Chrysanthemum uh, next week on an episode of the Criterion Cast, so we're kind of you know previewing a little bit, and then the following weekend we plan to uh, cover Women of the Night and Street of Shame, the the two later films in the Eclipse series set. But as Isu said, you know most people have seen Ugetsu. Uh, you know, most people who you know, who, who know Musiguchi will think of him as the director of Bugetsu, Sanjo the bailiff, uh, maybe The Life of a Haru, which is not quite as uh, kind of ancient and not as quite as uh, in the far-flung uh, legendary past, uh, but it is still a historic story that, that takes place in a past time and uh, has a different kind of feel to it than these very contemporary slice-of-life uh, films that, that took place right there in present-day Japan in 1936 when, when Mizoguchi was making these films. Now, also, Scott, you know, you and I have kind of expressed over the last few years our appreciation of melodrama, and these aren't maybe classic melodrama, but they certainly have a lot of those themes about, about heartache and and broken relationships, uh, the bittersweet disappointment of hoping for something only to have those dreams crushed and... and uh, you know, just kind of cruelly inverted because life just doesn 't go the way we always want it to, and that 's definitely a theme that unites these two films so uh you know as a as a uh, you know acknowledged melodrama fan, like how does this fit into that kind of spectrum of of uh, of a movies that you enjoy
1: yeah it 's interesting the kind of Japanese approach to melodrama is in some ways very similar to the American one in some ways uh, quite different i think uh, here Mizuguchi's approach is a lot more. Uh, it 's in some ways plot driven there 's a ton that happens for how rel- relatively short uh the films are, but also still quite focused you know the these are really re- surround. Uh, these really revolve around a few incidents uh in people 's lives and uh, a few key decisions that kind of set them off on the wrong path, which I think is kind of key to melodrama. And I, I guess the wrong path is the wrong term. I kind of bristle a little bit, even calling the set uh, Mizuguchi's fallen women, since in a lot of cases, the women didn't really have much of choice in how they ended up. Uh, but certainly if we can get into probably, I guess Osaka Elegy would be a good place to start with this. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's since do uh, it. the main character, uh, Ayako, am I pronouncing that right? You think?
0: Ayako. Yeah, I think that's think fair. Sure.
1: Okay. Uh, she, you know, has a, a stable enough life going. She's a switchboard operator and is kind of, you know, lightly going out with this uh, up-and-coming young man who would like to marry her and whom she would like to marry as well. And she just kind of reaches a point with her father's dis- poor decisions, his uh, embezzlement, that uh, she can no longer find a way to live alongside him until the point when she can kind of go off and live on her own. Uh, and so she really uh, breaks with him to a startling degree to a degree that I, I think some viewers might find a little unbelievable. And I could see how that plot turn would be a little exaggerated. But I think this is where the melodrama really comes in and that you can have characters who can make kind of outrageous decisions that speak to a sort of emotional truth. And we can kind of vicariously live through those decisions that we might might want to make in our own lives. You know, we might want to make very striking breaks with our families at some point and just kind of go off on our own and leave it all behind, no matter what the cost. And then we can kind of follow and see the results of that. In her case, she becomes sort of a kept woman for her boss, uh, who is just a a real slime ball top to bottom. Um, But it's interesting to watch the way she kind of navigates it from there in terms of, looking for ways to come back to her family and not quite finding them. And uh, the the ending I think is probably the most striking element of the film, but it's interesting how the film even doesn't really start with her at all. And both films do this they kind of start with uh, ancillary characters. In this case, her boss kind of fighting with his wife over trivial matters and her kind of saying, well, if you want a mistress, you can go and find one. And not knowing that he's already in the process of doing exactly that. Uh, and she will too have to live with the consequences of that kind of callous remark you know she it ends up she's not as uh, comfortable with that idea as she might think uh yeah. so I, I think in a lot of ways you see these kind of different intersecting plot lines in a way that is also very melodramatic and the way people keep bumping into each other and keep you know their plot lines converge at just the right moment and just the right moment they make maybe the wrong decision and yeah so there's a very plotted nature to it that i think fits in with that kind of melodramatic uh tradition
0: Yeah, yeah, you definitely got to look at sort of uh, kind of life uh, at not the top of Japanese society, but certainly the the upper middle class, you know, the business owners and the, you know, supposedly respectable men, you know, the men who kind of make the economic engine run. And, of course, we're, again, talking mid-1930s Japan. So uh, like the rest of the world, pretty much uh, there's a global depression going on. You know, times are tough, but, you know, this, uh, as you said, uh, Ayako has a job in a pharmaceutical company. But we're, we're sort of seeing what's happening at the ownership level. Uh, the, the boss is a man of, of pretty weak and feeble character who's married into a family of some prominence. You know, the wife is kind of the heir of the founder of the pharmaceutical company. And uh, he's, you know, th- this little domestic bickering scene at the beginning, uh, you sort of see just kind of how he talks down to the women in his life. He has a doctor friend who comes over, and uh, the doctor is uh, a bit of a rotund man, uh, almost a comic character in some ways, but uh, he's the witness to this little marital spat you know, as, the, as the husband and wife kind of start, you know, tossing accusations uh, you know, pretty awkwardly. I mean, that's not the kind of... Uh, fight you have in front of a, uh, a guest in your home. But, you know, some pretty funny little reaction shots. Uh, Meezy tosses in there with the doctor just kind of, you know, sh- shutting his eyes and wishing he was somewhere else as the barbs are exchanged. But, yeah, you definitely get the sense of of this entitlement of of this male character, you know, this man who's, a, you know, a chief of business, but he didn't really have anything to do with his success. He just kind of, you know, finagled his way into it. Uh, but even with all that privilege, you know, he says, oh, my life just doesn't have enough fun in it. And uh, again, the, the wife uh, is is kind of giving him the side eye and saying, "All right, go ahead and have your fun. Uh, you just don't have the guts." She's kind of taunting and shaming him in front of in front of his, uh, his of his male peer here, and and that's kind of what the engine that starts this whole thing. Uh, the women, uh, in this case, Ayako, uh, just kind of falls into this trap because she is. Uh, in a way, uh, relied upon uh, almost unknowingly by her family to rescue them from the troubles that, that her father's gotten them into. Uh, her father's done a little bit of uh, embezzling on the side. Again, another example of a, of a male figure who his ethical act isn't quite together, and he really has to rely on other people to bail him out. And that's basically what Ayako ends up doing on multiple occasions. In fact, if you you know, watch the film, look for three separate kind of fallings out where Ayako has a a conflict with either her father or later on her sister, and then finally the whole family where she just kind of walks out on them because she's kind of had it. You know, she's she's done uh, even self-sacrificial things on their behalf, but because uh, she doesn't really want to draw attention to that, they don't quite recognize the extent to which she has, you know, Served them by, you know, putting her own needs behind her for the the sake of the good of the family, uh, but she's a little bit too proud to come right out and say that that's what she's done. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of miscommunication here. There's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, and there's a lot of suppressed uh, emotions. Uh, even though Ayako, I think, turns out to be a, a woman who's pretty free to speak her mind, and I think again in the uh, more traditional patriarchal context of Japanese society. Uh, she was a woman who uh, I'm sure a lot of viewers at that time would have found, you know, kind of striking and, and, and non-traditional, uh, maybe even a little bit threatening and scandalous. Uh, so talk a little bit about these movies. They they were kind of produced uh, in a little independent uh, uh, studio that Mizoguchi helped get together again, you know, drawing on the fact that he had already directed fifty plus movies, he was a director with some clout. Uh, he he, you know, had become popular and, and successful, and uh, you know, viewers were very used to seeing his name uh, in the credits there, and he used that influence to kind of strike out on his own. Most of the films, that, as I understand that, that he had made prior to these were were like adaptations of popular stories and maybe more within the traditional studio system. This is where he kind of found his own voice, uh, took some chances, and actually ran into some problems with censorship uh, because as Japan was moving towards that more kind of aggressive war footing, uh, a movie about very modernistic women speaking their minds, smoking cigarettes, defying the men and authority over them was probably just not... uh, not look, looked that uh, uh, pleasantly upon by by the authorities, who were just kind of exerting more and more control uh, over even the popular culture of its time. So, so yeah, yeah. What do you what do you think about this kind of just the the conflict between men and women, and and how Mizoguchi really, you know, tends to portray the men as kind of these foolish saps, uh, corrupt hypocrites, and women as uh, you know. Not not simply martyrs, even though that martyrdom certainly comes through in a lot of his subsequent films. But here, uh, there's even a complexity that you don't I don't always see in some of his later films, where the women really are just so noble and, and so bitterly oppressed. Here, you know, Ayako could be said to create some of her own problems just because of her feistiness and because of her uh, kind of impudence.
1: Yeah, um well to get to the men first. I think you see these types of characters a lot in Japanese cinema, which you know, I don't know Japanese society that well outside of the movies, but I, I think there's probably a reason that there you see so many kind of middle aged businessmen acting out and getting drunk every night and just, like, behaving like buffoons a lot of the time, whereas the young men are very kind of strict with themselves and very servile. And I feel like there's a notion that these the older men have spent so much of their lives being those kind of servile, strict younger men that they never had a chance as young people to kind of lash out. And so they're getting out a lot of that energy later in life when the consequences for them are yeah. much less, if if not non-existent at all. Like like a um, postponed
0: adolescence or yeah, something absolutely. like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, which, I, you know, again, I don't want to judge or anything or, or say that's necessarily the case, but that's kind of the impression I get just within the world that the films create themselves. Um, and then for the women's part, I mean, there's no way to discuss Mizuguchi, I think, without uh, mentioning the fact that his sister was sold in the prostitution so that he could have a career and... That's been certainly, I think, rightly read into the subtext in a lot of his films is, you know, him really acknowledging how much his sister had sacrificed so that he could achieve ultimate, ultimately greatness, you know, for much of his career. Like we said, he made dozens of films without much outward notice. Not that there was a huge international market for Japanese cinema anyway, but, you know, he was popular enough, but not really one of the most acclaimed of Japanese directors. And these kind of really launched him onto that. And then... um so I think he really acknowledges the sacrifices that women make and sees the ways that men don't really think about it and don't give it a second thought. It was kind of, as my understanding, uh, expected that women would sacrifice themselves and for the sake of the men, if not, you know, kind of directly not giving up their lives in a death so to, way, so to speak, but living in a very active way every day, making the decision – to make money so that the men in their lives, whether it be husbands or brothers or fathers or whatever, could at least settle their debts, if not kind of build a career around the money they've made. Um, And yeah, I think uh, Ayako is a very dynamic character within that framework. Uh, Not, as you said, the kind of purely tragic character that he would get into later, which has its own, which he really found a way to kind of portray with kind of aesthetic beauty that I think excuses the kind of, well, it might seem at first could be flat characterization. Um, but Ayako fits in with... There's a film he made in 1954, I think, called The Woman in the Rumor that I think, think is another kind of modern Japanese woman who is as dynamic a character as Ayako is here. And Ayako is such a dynamic character here that I feel like maybe she kind of loses uh, some connective tissue in between. There's a scene near the end where various men in her lives kind of come into this one room and confront her about various things and she goes from like weeping in her lover's arms one second to uh, one of her patrons coming in the next and she's like completely stoic and I wonder if maybe something got cut out in the middle there to kind of connect the two there's a certain rushed feeling towards the end of a lot of the kind of the plotting losing its footing but I, I think ultimately that just speaks to how dynamic a character she is that she has all these different facets and different ways of presenting herself around different men that she has to kind of maintain a certain illusion that she doesn't have these other facets of her lives that the men have to acknowledge, you know, and which kind of explains why the men don't really see how much she's going through and how much she's suffering and how much she didn't really have a choice in how she ended up. Uh, So, yeah, I I think it's a really remarkable performance by uh, Izuzu Yamada, who I I take it to be was a frequent collaborator of Mizuguchi at the time. Do you know about her other work around that time? Uh,
0: not, not exactly. I mean, yeah. she, she is the kind of the lead character playing a kind of a similar personality type in Sisters of the and We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I'd probably have to just do a little quickie IMDB search to see if she was doing other things or, or to what level of prominence, uh, uh, she, she, uh, eventually rose, but, you know, Mizuguchi certainly had some other, uh you know, pretty Remarkable collaborations with with Female actors and so this is Probably his first you know uh, You know that That uh, this, The synergy of their relationship really comes through in, in these two particular films as well And I was also struck by that same scene Where she really is I mean she's uh, Susumu, I think is the guy, the, the young man kind of more age appropriate relationship that she was going to get into, uh, if life had kind of gone on a more normal course where she was just the working girl, she'd met the man that would be a good partner for her. And without all these other financial intrigues that, uh, kind of drew her into sort of having to sell herself, uh, you know, quite literally, uh, maybe, maybe life would have taken a much more happy and domestic turn, but, uh but the way she just flips the script from kind of portraying herself as this poor uh woman who's who 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 is trusting the man that she loves to accept the you know the what what could be seen as betrayal or as compromise uh you know she she's kind of asking for his mercy and he's kind of giving it because you know he's still pretty connected with her but uh th- this these, this movie really almost seems like a succession of scenes that really D- draws the viewer into those those crucial moments at the end, but I mean there is some interesting stuff along the way. So before we get to that ending sequence, there, um, you know, I just I am struck by how nimble she is and able to present different emotional sides of herself, even when she's, you know, sort of caught red-handed uh, with with her. Not really her lover, her patron, uh, the businessman. When he uh, takes her to the theater, and then later on, he you know she, he has her in a little apartment, and a couple of uh, you know unlucky coincidences allow his wife to track him down where he's in the company of this other woman, and it again you've got sort of this doubling of of discoveries and 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 how is this matter resolved you know how does ayako have to hold her head up in, in a situation that could be seen as shameful uh but really you know the, the shame really does belong more it seems to me to the man uh who's been double dealing and hypocritical and and exploitive uh still you know still the woman is the one who's regarded as fallen you know and then i think that 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 tag on the set uh is significant because i think the fallenness really is how society tends to view women in these circumstances. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the other elements that Mizuguchi uses here. I, he, uh, We're, we're going to see a lot in the story of the last chrysanthemum, the uh, employment of theater. And there's a pretty interesting theatrical sequence uh, in this film. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know what that's called in terms of its traditional Japanese name. It's kind of a puppet show. Uh, the men are all dressed in these kind of black hoods, so you don't really see the actors. I mean, they're kind of camouflaged, I guess, although you can still see their men you know, uh, operating these puppets. You just don't see their hands or their faces or any of their distinguishing features. What did you think of that little theatrical bit? I thought that was just an interesting look at the at the world of popular Japanese entertainment at the time. This is a almost like a night at the opera or the symphony or something like that. But it's a puppet show. You don't typically think of adults going to puppet shows, but this is uh, uh, something out of of a little higher order than, than those words might, you know, bring to one's imagination.
1: Yeah. Those, that kind of style of puppetry where the, you do have the actors all dressed in cloth. It is strange because at first you're like, well, this, this just looks ridiculous. You know, you can see the guys right there, but you know, the more you kind of look at it, the more convincing it is. And you really get drawn into the characters they're portraying, and you kind of slowly the actors seem to start to fade away um, without you totally forgetting that they're there, which I guess kind of reminds you of their skill and their prominence and how much work goes into even the slightest manipulation of the puppets. But I always like these kind of uh, theatrical excursions in any kind of movie, and especially I think in Japanese cinema where we're less uh, familiar with the theatrical stylings, whether it be in this or in uh, Ozu's Late Spring, there's that brief uh, trip to, I think, the No Theater. Uh, they just kind of allow for a little a breather in the action and uh, allow you to kind of soak in the atmosphere and what the characters are going through and kind of uh, reacquaint yourself with all that 's happened in their lives and it 's just kind of a nice way to uh, pause the drama without completely abandoning it now they have Mizaguchi certainly has his longer scenes and longer shots of just soaking in the atmosphere, but those scenes are usually so charged you know in this film you think of Maybe the, uh, cafeteria, the cafe kind of conversation between Ayako and uh, her suitor, uh, which is a very kind of soothing scene in some way. There's a great kind of soundtrack element where uh, you can hear kind of the crickets outside or the atmospheric noises, but the drama in it is so charged. So it's nice to take these trips to the theater where you don't have to think about any of that directly. You don't have to process any new information. You can just kind of, uh, yeah, just kind of sit with the characters for a little bit. Yeah,
0: you also mentioned his long shots, and there's another one that was I thought was particularly striking where she's shown at first kind of in the apartment that the businessman has furnished for her and kind of shut her up in because she's at this point had a pretty big falling out with her family. She can't live at home anymore, at least for a while, and uh, her whereabouts are kind of unknown because she's, she's quit her job, and, and, uh, and you know her, her boyfriend is kind of looking for her, and so you sort of see her, and, and the shot opens with her. You're watching her through a window, and there's even kind of a gauzy kind of curtain between her and the window and the and the camera. And then, uh, you know, after a, a moment of, of kind of watching her just sort of smoking a cigarette, just kind of staring off into space waiting for something to happen, the, uh, the businessman shows up at the bottom of the stairs at the outside of the building. It's a really pretty long and elaborate shot where he's kind of coming up the you know various uh, flights of stairs and into the apartment and you know again just you know it's one of those things where you can just watch the movie and maybe it doesn't even uh you know always get your attention but Musiguchi really did have uh this very famous knack for these very elaborately staged crafted Long takes, where he really let the actors you know inhabit the scene but but moved the camera and set everything up and I think that 's just another aspect of his artistic uh, talent that 's coming through here uh, he He had extremely high standards he he was a, a perfectionist, uh, he was ambitious and, and he really did strive to take cinema in into new directions now again. Was he posturing for the world stage? I, I don't really know that he had that kind of ambition. Probably not at this point in his career. But uh, as we will, as we will see when we start talking about uh, some of his films that came afterwards, the, the length of time and the epic scale. Definitely increased. I mean, he did the forty-seven Ronin, uh, I think in nineteen forty forty-one, which turned out to be like a four-hour movie. It's often split up into parts one and two, but it's really a, a four-hour epic, you know. So uh, he he's really uh, ramping up his his scale here. Even though these films are not long, there is some pretty elaborate setups and concepts that are that are on display here. Just uh, seeing how he puts these he's, these long takes together.
1: And even the long scenes, I mean, I think the final scene with uh, Yako and her family is really, really well constructed. You know, there's I didn't notice any especially long takes, but you get kind of these deep focus shots and uh, other wide shots and different ways of approaching the family and ways of situating us in perspectives so that throughout the scene we're constantly attuned to how each character is seeing what's going on. You know, the family's kind of united against her, but... Ultimately, they each have their own reasons for being so. You know, the younger sister is kind of embarrassed to go to school. The older brother is just embarrassed that his sister would be involved in such activities. And uh, the father, I mean, is so wrapped up in his own uh, financial concerns that he doesn't even see at all what Ayako's gone through for his sake. And then when you revert to Ayako's perspective, she's just trying to kind of get the family back together uh, yeah, and it yeah. creates a really, really interesting dynamic between all of them in a fairly short amount of time when we've never seen them all together in a room, but we instantly kind of get the rapport that they once had and the rapport that she's trying to regain.
0: Yeah, it is. It's a very, it's a very heartbreaking sequence, and and uh, I'll come back to that in just a second because there's another scene that really preceded all of that, which is where she thought she had kind of positioned herself you know in in just the right way she you know she had really become very weary of these these older men who uh were really just out to exploit her and 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 she understood it was kind of a two-way bargain all she was really getting from them was some money which uh, she says to one guy you know you can lose that much money just by playing the market so she didn't really see that she was doing anything uh you know uh what would be considered a ripoff or a scam. But in the, in, in the second of the businessmen that she kind of uh, you know, succumbs to and, and, and gets money from, uh, she's not even really willing to be his kept woman. She basically takes the money and runs, and that ends up being a bit of her undoing. But as she, even as she thought she had sort of dismissed him and sent him packing and gotten the money that she needed – uh, now she's finally set it up so that she's with her young lover, and uh, he's already kind of, you know, in her mind at least, pledged his love to her. But because uh, she had scorned this man of of some influence and kind of a, a vengeful personality, he decides to get the police involved. And because a woman's testimony is not really taken that seriously, especially if she's a, a younger woman who's, you know. Uh, Parted a man from his his precious yen, uh, the police are going to take a pretty skeptical uh, approach toward whatever account she or explanation she might have to give. So the the young man, uh, her her Susumu, her lover, and and uh, Ayako are brought into the police station, and and uh, Ayako is kind of you know doing her best to maintain a brave front, uh, but she's really counting on Susumu to to stand up for her and she hears through the other side of the partition that he's basically just crumbling he's not only uh, refuting her version of the story but basically saying he doesn't really love her he never really intended to marry her and she's a terrible woman and I, I don't know that the 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 look on her face as she's just kind of staring in at, at in profile uh towards the direction of of her you know now ex boyfriends uh, ex fiance's voice it's just a pretty stunning moment it's just it's it's just a pretty powerful shot because you sort of see her silently realizing something that there there's just a fundamental betrayal of of uh of the man that she thought was going to be her ticket not a ticket but but was going to be her partner in in a life that would be satisfying and independent and free from some of the you know compromises that she had to make for the sake of her family she's she 's looking to start something new. She thought she'd found the man who would would help her get there, and now he turns out to be a failure as well uh, so the police bring her home, and that's where she's at least again trying to put the bright side of on things she's back with her family she's bringing all of her smiles her positive energy, and recognizes in a in a pretty you know, well-constructed series of shots that they're just—they're just not having it. In fact, they're shunning her uh, right to her face. And, and you're right, Scott. Those—the kind of the way that Mizuguchi's camera just moves around the table, so that you've got different characters right up in the foreground, uh, and you're just kind of making the rounds from everybody's perspective. And—and and that's where Ayako finally realizes she is truly alone in this world. And then we get to that, that pretty stunning conclusion. So, yeah. So what was your take on just kind of those those final few minutes?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think the last scene with the family really sets up well why I think ultimately she just can't go back. And I think that's what the last shot is about. And a number of reviews that I read it kind of remarked on how different that final shot is from so many other endings in Mizuguchi where she's not completely desolate. She is, in fact, marching towards, you know a tomorrow whether or not it's a better tomorrow or what have you uh is certainly left up to the viewer's imagination and assumptions but at any rate she's seems to finally be on her own which is i think a victory in its own right you know she's not kind of hiding who she is anymore she's not having to negotiate those various personas in front of so many different people she's uh finally herself and whatever that might mean you know i think to a certain extent we have to kind of read into who she really is because she's putting on so many personas, you know, is she the uh, well-behaved daughter who speaks out occasionally? Is she, you know, the woman who just wants to get married? Is she the modern woman who doesn't need any of this? Uh, Regardless, she's going to have to live with that reality to whatever extent she's responsible or not responsible for it. Uh, So it's a really, I think it's the kind of ending that really causes you to uh, go back on your, your own assumptions and see how you might be contributing to, other people living in such a way, and I'm sure for Japanese audiences at the time, it's really a, a call to consciousness to confront the way that women are treated and the way that we expect them to behave in certain ways and to fulfill these various roles and what it even means for a woman to be her own person in that kind of time and space is uh, a question worth asking. And I think he does it in such a really lovely way without really you know being too didactic about it. Uh, but still getting the point across
0: yeah yeah that 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 just that directness of her look right into the camera as she's kind of walking and you know her her kind of it's not the camera zooming in for a close-up it's her approaching the camera eyes just like right on the audience saying okay are you gonna label me a delinquent or or what do you really think of me here's who I am and boom the end (laughs) it's like a very sharp uh blunt but really bold conclusion to to the film and I think both of these films, uh, this one and Sisters of Gion both have this kind of breathtaking ending, this this finality to them while, where there is this kind of openness, there is this kind of uh, up to the viewer, fill in the blank what do you think happens to Ayako at the end or after the end after she's uh, finished her walk across that bridge uh, it, there is an intrigue you know, that kind of makes us wonder but there's just such a, a starkness to the way that it ends on this kind of, bam note. You know, it's it's pretty pretty remarkable, and uh, I, I have to think that this was a very uh, kind of an unusual final scene for a film of this sort to, to end up on. So, you want to talk about Sisters of the Gion or any other last comments on that? I think we've pretty done a pretty good job covering Osaka Elegy.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, Sisters of the Gion almost. I, you could almost read it as a sequel to this. You know? At this moment, uh, it's the same actress playing another mm-hmm. very strikingly modern woman who is very opinionated and uh, seems to have gone through a similar experience to uh, Iaco, uh In that she's been through the ringer so many times with so many different men that she's just finding her own angle and finding a way to exploit what little power she has to uh, gain some sort of independence and uh, prominence on her own. Uh, whereas her sister is the more kind of traditional uh, Japanese geisha who's very servile. And, uh, but this is another film that starts off with a completely different story before getting us into the world of the sisters. You know, we get this really great opening tracking shot where these items are being auctioned off at this uh, man's store and we, Instantly realize he's been kind of left in financial ruin and has to go live with these two sisters, the more traditional of which he's been or he kind of supported in her younger years. And I think was still considered her patron at that point in the story. Is that the impression that you got as well? Yeah,
0: yeah, I think so. He, he was definitely a man of means. His business has come belly up. And not only has his business kind of floundered, but his wife and I don't know if it's wife and daughter or his wife, in any case, is moving away back home to live with other relatives because he does not even have the means to support his wife anymore. So he's really kind of cut loose. Um, he's going to try to, you know, you know, maintain some kind of business connection, see if he can rebuild this uh, thing from the wreckage. But in the meantime, he's kind of, uh, you know, again, that postponed adolescence. You know, he's kind of on his own, uh, scrapping for money. The wife is probably... Probably going back to preserve her own honor, and for all I know, she may be just sick of being with this guy anyways. I mean, bankruptcy definitely is the kind of thing that will put a strain on a marriage, to say the least. Uh, so so uh, the, the sisters uh, are uh, Umakichi. She's the more traditional geisha and... Omocha, who's the uh, kind of more educated, more modern women, uh, they're both geisha, but Omocha uh, kind of alludes to the fact that she's had some education a little bit further on once we meet those two characters. But you're right, we, we start by seeing this kind of uh, more traditional uh, Japanese couple, a little bit more like of the middle-aged sort, uh, prominent in business, uh, affluent on the surface of things but now facing some adversity. In this case, it's bankruptcy. In the the previous film, it was more just about kind of a lack of contentment uh, and a lack of fulfillment. You know, you've got the outward trappings of prestige, but you're just not really satisfied with what life has to offer. Here, they've lost their their fortune, so the outward circumstances are certainly more dire, uh, but the the businessman uh, Furusawa I, I I get the guy's names confused but the the, the businessman who's been uh, Umekichi's patron yeah that was you know, Furusawa yeah yeah he's he's the one who has to stay with with the sisters because you know he doesn't really have any place to go they presumably sold their home and he's just kind of uh, kind of footloose and wandering so uh, Omocha does not like the fact that this kind of creepy old dude is going to be living with them now she she feels kind of insulted by the whole, you know, situation in life that she's fallen into. She she kind of goes on a little bit of a, of a, a rant about how these men just want to make us into playthings. They just bring their money, and they exploit us, and, uh, you know, we should be better than that. And, uh, you know, maybe this is the best she can do. She's just going to get their money, and those are the terms that she's had to uh, reluctantly accept. But to actually... Put up with them in her own home, and to, to lose the privacy, and then and then all the other things that come along with it. It's not that he's just living there, but he's being catered to, he's being flattered, he's being treated like uh, an old patron, even though he doesn't really have the money to support his own his own weight. So it's just an insult to Amocha uh, on multiple levels. Uh, and and again, uh, like like Ayako in the previous film, this is a young woman who's looking for a way to. Uh, you know, improve her lot in life, but also to maybe get a little bit of revenge. Uh, Just there is a little bit of a chip on her shoulder uh, at the situation she's had to settle for, and uh, she will find ways within the limits of what she can get away with to, uh, you know, to to tip the scales back in her favor to somehow come out on top. And again, this is where uh, maybe a more uh, chauvinistic viewer uh, might, you know, even feel a little bit of justification that, that these women kind of get what they deserve because they are, even in a sort of passive-aggressive way, fighting against the system. But I think Mizuguchi's aim here, of course, is to is to highlight just how corrupt and exploitive the system itself really is.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think there's an extent to which he's a little more didactic about that here than in the previous film, I think certainly by the end, you know, he's practically writing his views into the character's mouths, which is always a little clunky, even if there's kind of a climactic beauty to it all. But I, the ensuing drama in which Emocha uh, tries to uh, finagle away to not only get Furso out, but to improve her sisters and her standing by bringing in more wealthy and wealthy do patrons, uh, or even not even patrons, just exploiting whatever men they have around. You know, there's the... Uh, fabric maker who she kind of convinces to make a very fancy kimono for free, so that uh, um, could she am, am I saying that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so that she can perform in a more formal setting and kind of establish herself in that crowd uh, and so yeah she 's just looking a uh, mocha that is is looking for basically any angle she can, and the plotting mostly revolves around the extent to which she's successful in doing that and the way that that kind of comes back around to bite her as the men inevitably run into one another. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Her, her plotting and scheming kind of gets discovered and that, you know, ultimately proves to be her undoing. Uh, In this case, it's not so much the law it's, it's more, uh, more brutal than that. It's more uh, menacing on a, on a physical uh, as well as a psychic level because, and she finds herself uh, you know, towards the end of the film in an extremely compromised situation where or her life may be in danger or she may be you know, at risk of being really seriously hurt or abused in some way. And so, yeah, there is this kind of gathering tension as, as the story goes on. Uh, but you know, before we get to, again, before we get to the, the, the striking conclusions of these films, there's uh, interesting things along the way. I mean, this film is titled Sisters of Gion, which is a, the Gion is a kind of a, a shrine district, I guess. It's kind of a, a place where, you know, people go to pray and to go you know, do you know make the traditional religious observations. There's a really beautiful scene. It's one of the few outdoor, brightly lit daylight scenes in, in either of these films. Which either tend to take place in interiors or are at night outdoors, but this scene is is quite beautiful of uh, The sisters basically walking around just kind of having their little conversation, kind of debating a little bit about the the uh, the virtues and the dilemmas of the geisha life as as a mocha is basically trying to make a case that her sister should sort of stand up for herself and and be a little less servile and a little bit more independent and free thinking. Uh, and then, in the process of this little circuit that they're making around the shrines, as they kind of do their little, you know, clasp their hands, bow their heads, and, and pay their respects, uh, Emocha learns that there is a man who's ready to kind of, you know, uh, become a little bit more pliable because he's just drawn to her beauty, and, and she is she is quite beautiful uh, in, in a kind of a, a humble working class way in this film, and that's kind of what gives her that opening to to you know to go ahead and and uh, first get the kimono, and then there's another really uh, wonderful seduction scene where uh, the businessman, uh, the, the the fabric merchant's boss, comes to kind of confront her because he realizes that uh, his young apprentice has been kind of duped by this wily woman, <laughs> and it's just very fascinating how she really swiftly turns the tables because... Uh, you know she she makes it known that she really is in need of a patron and and within moments this guy who's kind of there to tell her off and to uh vouch for the uh the honor of his young apprentice and and uh, try to write things <laughs> he finds himself being drawn uh and and the way again Mizuguchi stages the scene you know he 's kind of at her you know not front porch but really at her front door talking to her fairly sternly, and she kind of draws him into the parlor and serves him a drink and, you know, gets him to relax and feel comfortable. And, you know, in a way, she is kind of climbing, uh, by, by drawing him in. But, uh, it's, it's a, it's, I don't know, just to, to me, it was a very effective scene, but pretty, pretty amusing as well. And, and you just kind of get this sense of, of, of movement and kind of drawing into the, into the lair a little bit as, uh, as, as Mizuguchi's camera placement just kind of you know works around the characters to to show how this man's being kind of uh, kind of seduced uh, by this young woman's charms.
1: Yeah, I think it's really the standout scene of the film, in part because it might be the longest. It certainly kind of felt like he was really taking his time to build. Uh, the tension, and there's a lot that has to happen in the scene. You know, the merchant has to come in very fiery and ready to tell her off and then be slowly seduced by her, and I I didn't get the impression that this was part of Mocha's uh, larger plan in any way, but it sort of, you see... It's an opportunity
0: that she saw that she says... Exactly.
1: You see how well she adapts to any given situation and kind of brings it into her, her goals and finds a way to exploit that angle, and you see how good she is at the kind of the business side of the geisha lifestyle in a way that her sister kind of can't quite grasp and is just caught up in the uh, cultural and uh, performative aspects of it. But Emoto really understands uh, exactly how to push men's buttons and how to, you know, twist them into doing what she needs them to do. And yeah, just, but even the viewer can get seduced by it too, because the camera work, like you said, is just so graceful and the performances have this great, kind of quality to them that you see how uh, men can fall into these traps and fall into spending, you know, great vast sums of money on these women. And uh, yeah, it's a really lovely scene top to bottom, even if it's not uh, the most sympathetic for anyone involved, you know, it's a mocha at her most kind of uh and her most kind of uh, conniving. And it's the fabric merchant is most uh, vulnerable and pathetic. Uh, but you see just how the society kind of maintains itself through it.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, a lot of veiled aggression in all of these exchanges, you know, and I, and I, I wonder if, if Mizuguchi didn't have at least one of his motives of, of trying to help. Exposed Japanese men to themselves, or at least certain types of Japanese men, because of the, you know the the scene earlier where the, where he's just staggeringly drunk and just so so completely out of it. It's like you, you know you see those scenes in, in Ozu and and of course know, a lot of these great Japanese directors have have scenes of men just really <laughs> really falling all over themselves, and uh, you know they happen with such frequency that. You feel like, yeah, there's a certain type of man that they are, you know, putting in, in the in the spotlight here, and uh, is is Mitsuguchi trying to even in some ways appeal to the conscience of viewers who might say, you know, <laughs> I see a little bit more of myself in this character than than I wish I would. So uh, he he did have ambitions, I think, as a. As a social reformer, and especially as his stature grew uh, over the course of his career and, and in his later movies, he actually did have a very um, significant impact. We'll talk a little bit more about that in, in our next episode, where uh, he actually, you know, he had the ability to to affect. Popular opinions and political uh, initiatives, and 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 ultimately Japanese law. So uh, th- he was not necessarily a, a a humble man. He he definitely saw uh, he, we and we kind of talked about this. Uh, Trevor and I and and Pauline when we talked about George Bernard Shaw, our previous episode. These these uh, creative geniuses who really seek to leave their fingerprints and and shape society along uh, lines of values and, and, uh, and moral principles that, uh, they feel, you know, reform is needed. And I think even here in some of these early films, you see Mizuguchi trying to say, wake up people, let's, let's treat each other better. Let's, uh, try to, you know, halt some of the foolishness that, uh, you know, really does take its toll on other people in their lives.
1: Yeah. And the two sisters kind of represent, uh, those two sides of one being the very modern one being very traditional. And one of the pieces you link to in our our show notes and hope listeners will check those out and they can see where I'm stealing this from. Uh, But you see through them two different trajectories Japan is facing at the time. Whereas if, you know, if they stay completely traditional, they'll, be kind of left behind and uh, the world will move on without them and they'll be left with nothing. Whereas if they rush too hard to modernism, you know, they'll be crushed and left in ruin. And I think uh, Japan's ultimate fate over the next decade kind of shows that neither approach really... Uh, that, I guess Mizuguchi was right in that them trying to make both approaches at once was kind of going to turn out poorly for them and kind of leave a lot of people dead or in ruin and real kind of anticipatory tragedy to the trajectory of this film
0: yeah yeah i also i'm thinking about sort of the generational conflict between men of japan you sort of see that scene where the uh the young apprentice the the fabric merchant the guy who was originally kind of somewhat duped into providing the material for the kimono he is uh, shamed and, and insulted by his boss saying you know you shouldn't you know, mess around with such women and, you know, be a good boy and get back in line and and all that, only to discover that his own boss is philandering around, uh, you know, himself with this same woman. And that's where the kind of the, the screws get twisted between the younger man and the older man, where the younger man is seeing, wow, this this guy who's kind of raised me, has taught me and has taken me under his wing turns out to be as lowly of a deceitful hypocrite as any of them and so uh, again you know maybe it's projecting uh, you know quite a bit to think wow this is is the uprising of the young men kind of you know looking askance at, at their older role models but you do definitely see uh you know, pretty interesting uh, revelation of, of hypocrisy among men uh, to each other. Uh, do as I say, not as I do, pretty pretty clearly personified in, in that little exchange there. And yeah. that's actually kind of what leads to the whole, you know, dynamite at the end. Go ahead.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was just going to kind of echo what you were saying and that it kind of speaks again to what we're, I was saying with the uh, Osaka Elegy in terms of the older men finding an excuse to kind of act out in their old age and indulge in the things they wouldn't as younger men. And then in turn, you see here expecting the younger men to fall into those servile roles that they presumably once held themselves and just kind of get the sense of a unending repeating cycle. And you see that in a lot of different cultures too, where the older generation expects the younger generation to, behave by the same rules that they did, if only as kind of a payback, you know, well, it had to be worth it for me, you know, so you have to suffer too. And you see that in all kinds of social dynamics from workplaces to even frat houses. There's a uh, sense in which the older generation constantly wants the younger ones to suffer just because they had to.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. So so let's talk about the conclusion. This is, a, this is an ending that has its own kind of starkness and kind of, uh, you know... Kind of striking angles to it. Uh, I, I think if you have to put one over the other, I think I like the ending of Osaka Elegy better, just because I agree it seems much fresher. This one here is a, is a little bit pedantic, a little bit, uh, you know, you know. I, I think you use the word didactic. Definitely, it, it spells out all the grievances that uh, that Omocha is feeling as she's been basically, you know, kidnapped. Uh, you know, the the men kind of. Pick her up, force her into the car. Uh, I, no, I, no, she got, got into the car willingly, if I can recall correctly. Yeah,
1: she thought yeah. she was going someplace else or with somebody else. I can't remember the exact details, but, yeah, essentially she was uh, hoodwinked and then uh, a- ambushed, basically.
0: Right, and yeah. so she makes a pretty drastic decision. We don't see it on camera, but she basically has to bail out of the car because they're driving pretty fast. They're going to take her somewhere. Who knows? Are they going to rape her? Are they going to beat her up? Are they going to kill her? Uh, are they going to give her to you know, some authorities or whatever? He says, you're going to get what you deserve, and the next thing you know, uh, something terrible has happened. It's it's almost like uh, uh trope of she got hit by a car.
1: <laughs> yeah, <know>? seriously. <laughs> Once like, again, transportation is our undoing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, she had to jump out of the vehicle uh, as it was presumably moving at a high speed, and we don't really see the accident, but we just see her laid up in her hospital bed or not not her hospital bed, but a, a convalescent bed at her home. And that's where her kind of heartrending final plea takes place. And it is it's very pitiful. It's 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 you know, it's moving and you have to be really kind of stone cold to not be affected by by the things that she says. But it is a little bit on the nose and and uh you know spelled out in no uncertain terms, uh, kind of how the viewer is supposed to feel about all this.
1: Well, yeah, and at that point, too, uh, Umekichi has been abandoned by Furosawa, who she was sacrificing everything for. And you get the sense that her That's relationship, right. or at least feelings for him, were more than just professional. Um, right, right. But she,
0: had, she had really kind of bonded with this guy, and she had taken taken his burden upon herself, even though she had no resources really you know, to share what, what little she had she did extend to him.
1: Exactly. And then towards those final moments we find out that he's uh leaving town and rejoining his wife at another outpost i think he has another business opportunity out there if i remember correctly um and he instantly realized how little he thought of her as anything more than just a a place to crash basically and the, the last place he could turn to when he was facing ruin and as soon as he gets like an inch out of ruin he's ready to abandon her. And so you get to that final scene where it's, it's a very moving tableau where Umekichi is kind of crouched as, uh, Omacha is in bed, you know, uh, recovering from her injuries. And I think that tableau alone just kind of says it all in, in a way that the dialogue doesn't need to, but which Mizuguchi, you know, s- still, it's weird to call him an amateur after making dozens of films, but he's still kind of relying on these more, uh, straightforward tropes of, spelling things out in a way that later he would just rely on the image itself to kind of say it all.
0: Yeah. I, I think, yeah. Even if, even if Emocha's uh, speech had been trimmed down just a little bit, just a few observations, uh, kind of a more of an Ozu like, you know, isn't life disappointing type of thing and, and let, let the image itself just sort of speak to the viewer. So again, he's, he's refining his craft and, and certainly Mizuguchi would go on to, uh, sculpt films of of wrenching power and and pathos uh, as he as he proceeded uh, to to just to perfect his art. So you know, I I think that pretty well sums up my my take on both of these films. There are just some there are some beautiful shots. I I, I do love those uh, those outdoor locations. There's a very particularly beautiful uh, image of uh, when they're crossing this little not even a river it's it's kind of a stream or some kind of a canal perhaps uh, in the city uh, where the water's just sparkling it's just a, it's just a really nice image and i think it is uh quite a privilege to have films of this quality made in pre-war japan just because it does feel like such a such a unique time and place and uh and to have a a filmmaker of Mizuguchi's, uh, talent, you know, just capturing these images of Japanese life really makes these films, uh, quite delightful and, and very, very much worth the revisit, you know, even, even if it's not elements directly related to the story, just, just the placement, uh, just the architecture, uh, the the wardrobes just that whole feel. I just really, you know, can't get enough of this stuff. I mean, uh the uh, travels with hiroshi shimizu set has a a lot of a lot of uh, images of japan from the same time a little bit more rural settings often this is a little bit more urban but uh you know i i love these films and uh you know the other two that we're going to be talking about next week are are i would say more accomplished in many ways but but these are these are pretty remarkable movies in and of themselves
1: yeah and they make a very fine pair like i said the get the same actress playing a similar type of character. They're structurally very similar in that they start off kind of aside from the main action and then spend a lot of time in the main action, then kind of rush towards their finales. Uh, and they were, as far as we can tell, uh, kind of Mizuguchi's really uh, emergence into prominence that he would utilize so well in the coming years. So while I don't think they're, you know, the best place to necessarily start with Mizuguchi, they're definitely worth investigating for those who are already on board with what he's doing. And, uh, yeah, I think they established so much of what he would come to be about and are very dynamic and interesting works in their own right. And I, I also love this kind of period in Japan and getting a window in this time that for so much is lost from this period. You know, the early silent films, even of up until the mid thirties are uh, often lost completely. So it's a r- rare window that I hope uh, people check out and that Criterion continues to release films of, you know, Naruse's work in this period is also very interesting and, uh, is I think worth Criterion putting some time into if they resume their eclipse series, perhaps that'll be another avenue in the future.
0: I certainly hope so. I think, yeah, the Narase's, forties uh, and fifties films in particular really need much more exposure than they're getting, uh, on the current Hulu setup. So we will, we shall see. So I think we're going to kind of wrap things up for, for now. Yeah. Uh, we will, we will pick up the pieces, uh, where, where Mizuguchi goes from here and our next episode of Criterion cast. And then, uh, all things working out, we'll have Trevor, Scott, and myself to wrap up uh, Women of the Night and uh, Street of Shame, the last two films, and Mizuguchi's Fallen Women. So, this is episode 47 of The Eclipse. We are signing off. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye bye.